Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mind's Eye podcast. Um, you are t- listening to Dr. Annika van der Welt. I'm a neuro-ophthalmologist um, at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne. And with me, I have my co-host, um, an esteemed neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Neil Shui, who is also at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital um, in Melbourne. And um, Neil is going to um, give us some key points from his talk that he's giving at the Neurovision Australia meeting in Sydney about functional visual loss and an approach to this difficult um, problem. So welcome, Neil. Thank you, Annika. Great to be here. So I guess just to, as a leading, Neil, I was wondering if you could perhaps just outline to our listeners what you would define as functional visual loss, how you would define it, and how it fits into psychiatric um, definitions um, and classifications. Thanks, Annika. So this is a, a condition that is plagued with problems in terminology. We use this term functional visual loss, but other terms that have been used would be non-organic visual loss or psychogenic visual loss. This really falls within the spectrum of medically unexplained disease or medically unexplained symptoms. So these patients typically come to neuro-ophthalmology attention because the patient reports problems with their vision, yet the ophthalmic examination is normal and investigations are all normal. And so this then leads to a question of, uh, of how the vision loss has come about. In terms of the terminology, we prefer the term functional visual loss rather than some of these other terms because this is a very delicate area to be negotiating with patients. As you would know, Annika, as a neurologist, we often see people who have non-organic neurological symptoms and it's a, it's a very confusing area for patients and patients are often prone to take offence to insinuations that they're making up their disease or that they um, that, that there's something you know wrong with their um, with their head you know that, that's causing this problem that they're um, somehow just uh, being too anxious or reacting to to other problems so so functional visual loss has come out in studies as being a, a terminology that people can understand that tells us what's going on, that there's not a, a structural problem in the brain or the visual system, but in fact there is actually a um, uh, somehow a processing problem or a, a perception that the vision is reduced. In terms of the psychiatric conditions, really this, this comes down to the etiology and, and the motivation for the, the patients. We think about the majority of these non-organic or functional visual loss patients are doing this subconsciously. That is, they have no control over over their symptoms um, and it, it's a representation of an underlying psychiatric disorder such as somatization or conversion disorder. That's the vast majority of patients with functional visual loss. There are smaller subsets of patients with similar findings who are related to what's called factitious disorder. So this is people who are deliberately inventing symptoms, but it is as a result of a psychiatric illness. So there's often some form of of gain, secondary gain that's involved. And this is often also known as Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen's by proxy. And then the third category is people who are deliberately and consciously inventing symptoms for some sort of financial or other gain. And that's referred to as malingering. So obviously these three conditions differ greatly in terms of the, the uh, intention of the patient. 
but and also in terms of their treatment. But the physical signs and symptoms that we see are often very similar. That's great, Neil. Um, I think you sort of touched on what some of the, the big problems is with these disorders, and that's generally that the patient is, you know, not keen to be labelled as being functional and, then, and often strongly believes that there's just an organic problem that's being missed um, and, and jumps from doctor to doctor. And then from the medical side, you know, we generally also don't like seeing these patients because um, with this a lot of you know, treatment futility and a feeling that time is being wasted. But I liked how what you said in your talk about, you know, that resistance really is futile. These things are common. Um, and if we do not approach it correctly, we can make the patient worse um, and render someone completely non-functional. Thanks, Annika. And, and just in reference to that point about um, our reaction as doctors to that uh, to the challenge of seeing a patient with functional visual loss, it's important to take a leaf from our colleagues in psychiatry and use terms like counter-transference um, and others to recognise our own reactions because it is almost a universal reaction amongst doctors to feel angry at the patient who presents them with a functional visual loss. And yet these patients are severely disabled. As we've just said, the majority of them have no voluntary control over their symptoms. So we have to wonder, why do we feel like that? And that's probably because we feel um, annoyed as if the patient is trying to trick us or somehow is doubting our own clinical skills. Sometimes doctors will say, you know, don't these patients realise that we're going to be able to figure, figure out that these symptoms are, uh, are not organic? Um, and as you say, there's often a perception that these are wasting our time. I've got, I've got sick patients here I need to be seeing and, and this is just taking up a lot of time. But we need to move away from that. Um, is there anything in this situation that you would um, recommend to our listeners to consider when they take the history? So these patients often have very long and detailed um, symptoms to be taken from their history and it is not uncommon for them to have not only visual symptoms but also other medically unexplained symptoms in their past. And when when questioned about these, they will often have you know symptoms, for example, that may have been attributed to asthma or to irritable bowel syndrome and, and other conditions which um, may reflect perhaps some of their underlying anxieties and other, other issues. When they have these long lists of symptoms, I prefer to do what's called drain the symptoms dry, and that is to make a list of all the symptoms and then to go through them in detail. And this obviously takes a lot of time, but patients really need this. Otherwise, they will certainly be able to come back to you later and say, you didn't listen to everything that I said and you didn't take uh, due account of all my symptoms. Um, it's very important to find out about what happened with other doctors. And as I said before, often patients come to you as the fourth or fifth or tenth opinion. And usually there's been a falling out with previous doctors and you need to understand why that occurred. Sometimes that's because they were challenged. Sometimes it's because um, the doctors weren't quite certain what was going on. And then uh, you need to also be very careful that you don't take at face value what the patient says about their past investigations and treatment. Sometimes that's because of genuine misunderstanding, but it's not uncommon for patients in this circumstance to say, Dr. X said I had multiple sclerosis, or this test showed that I had delayed visual evoked potentials. Um, but when you go back and track through the notes, the, the striking feature is the paucity of positive findings that are there. And when we come to trying to get to the etiology of this and whether there's any underlying psychiatric 
symptoms. I think this is a really difficult area. Patients often react quite angrily if you come out and say, do you have problems with depression or anxiety? Their first reaction is often to say, why, what are you saying? Uh, Are you implying that I'm making this all up? Which is an unusual response in the ophthalmology or the neurology clinic. You know, most of the time patients are quite willing to attribute many of their problems to stresses and anxieties that are occurring in their life. So I think you have to go very, very carefully. Um, I tend to focus on those uh, organic symptoms or somatic symptoms of depression first, like sleep disturbance um, and uh, and uh, loss of appetite, those kinds of things, and try to gen- gently broach the subject. You know, just looking at the person as they come into your examination rooms and perhaps some warning signs and behaviour that could make you already um, think that this could be a functional visual loss problem. There are certain features uh, Nancy Newman and Valerie Buse um, have, uh, have described as the sunglasses sign. And uh, this is the idea that patients who are sitting in the, in the consulting room wearing sunglasses indoors, yet they don't have any ophthalmic disease. And that's an important uh, point because obviously patients who have, for example, iritis or dry eye or other symptoms may have a good reason for wearing sunglasses. But patients not in that category in the waiting room wearing sunglasses, uh, this has a very good positive predictive value for determining functional visual loss. So they found a specificity of 0.995 for this particular sign and the probability that a patient wearing sunglasses in the waiting room has functional visual loss is 80%. (laughs) So this uh, leads to, uh, I think, heart sink in our waiting room when we see patients wearing this. Um, Look, I I think there are also other signs, including um, patients who have a a large entourage of relatives that want to come in with them, often stacks of notes um, that detail the list of many uh, professors and other people that they have seen, the multiple investigations that have all proven futile and documenting their track record of going around to see uh, doctors until they get the opinion that they are are looking for. Um, We can sometimes see behaviour not consistent with blindness. So people will, uh, you know, navigate easily into the room, sit down in the chair, direct their attention towards you despite um, appearing to have no perception of light or very poor poor vision. Um, Sometimes this sort of behaviour is also noticed on the wards and nurses and other people who have the opportunity to surreptitiously watch people will notice that uh, when people are not having their attention directed to their visual disturbance, often seem to behave as though their vision is much better. Um, And then we see um, other classical um, signs, um, such as uh, not directing eye attention to hands during manual tasks. The other... factor that has been raised as a behaviour not consistent with blindness is labelle indifference and this is the idea that patients who have catastrophic neurological deficits appear to be unconcerned by this and this is a classical sign for all uh, functional disturbances but you have to be a little bit careful that sometimes just reflects the patient's personality. Yeah that's right. Um, I guess are there certain things that um, a person that is truly blind should be able to do that um, you know that could also give you a clue? 
Yeah, that's right. There's um, tests that people often perceive as being related to vision, but in fact have nothing to do with it. And, and the easiest example is to get someone to sign their name. Um, even a completely blind patient can still um, sign their name once the pen has been placed on the paper. Um, yet these patients will often make a great show of not being able to do it. And the other thing is tests of proprioception. So it is quite possible for even people listening to this podcast to be able to shut their eyes and then bring their two index fingers directly uh, together in front of their nose without being able to watch it. This is a test of proprioception, not a vision. And yet patients who are blind, again, will often go through a dramatic ritual of not being able to perform such tasks. Um, that's great, Neil. I wonder if we could go through a few sort of specific tests we use in neuroophthalmology to try and work out um, if someone does have organic visual loss or not. Um, perhaps we could start with um, patients who complain of um, vision loss just in one eye um, or monocular visual loss, and you think that this could be um, a functional problem. Um, how is there any tests you could do in the rooms to test for this? So there are clinical clues that we look for, including um, things such as whether there's a relative afferent pupil defect, um, if there is um, very severe vision loss, such as no perception of light or perception of light and in one eye and no RAPD, that is uh, really inconsistent. And then there are these uh, particular tests that we can be doing, um, and there's a variety such as the fogging technique, um, these are all designed to try and demonstrate that the vision is in fact better than what the patient claims that it is. So fogging technique involves putting um, plus lenses, which normally should blur the image, uh, in front of the, the so-called good eye, such that in the end the patient who has both eyes open is reading all the way down the chart but is unaware that they're only doing that with their so-called bad eye. This requires a lot of skill in technique to be able to do it because you have to be able to be changing lenses in, in both eyes um, without the patient being quite aware as to what you're up to. Um, we look at uh, other clues such as um, the visual field testing, which I think we'll probably come to later, and um, the uh, features such as stereopsis. So having good stereo acuity on tests such as the Titmus stereo fly is really incompatible with having monocular or binocular severe vision loss. What about perimetry? Um, do you think that that could be useful in this situation, visual field testing? Look, I think it's really uh, invaluable. Um, the first thing is confrontation field testing. And here the thing to look for is the so-called tubular field. And I find this is one of the most useful tests to do in clinical practice uh, at, at the bedside. What we do here is uh, the patient is demonstrating a very constricted visual field on standard confrontation field testing. You then need to increase the testing distance. And we know from the, the laws of geometry and optics that if you double the testing distance between yourself and the patient, you should be increasing the area of the visual field fourfold. Um, and so we should be able to demonstrate um, in a normal severely constricted visual field that as the testing distance increases, so does the area of, of vision. However, patients with these non-anatomical visual field defects often have a tubular field that stays exactly the same size, whether you are right in front of them or across the other end of the room, which is, as I said, non-anatomical. 
when we come to formal perimetry, either uh, or static automated perimetry, we sometimes see the cloverleaf pattern, which is looking as though in, in each of the four quadrants, there is a, a little area that is seen well, and then everything else around it is, um, is poor, so it has this cloverleaf appearance. And we also see on kinetic perimetry, such as with the Goldman perimeter, um, classical features such as a spiral visual field. And this is where the target is kept constant in terms of size and illumination. But as we go around and around, uh, the, the isopter just keeps spiraling, spiraling inwards. And that's telling us that the patient is fatiguing and that they are, um, their visual defect is getting worse as the test goes on. Um yeah, those are all really, really useful tests. What about someone with, um, a, you know, a hemianopia um, who appears to have a hemianopia when you test them? Um, is, there, is there a way to work out if that, that's really a true deficit? So one really useful test is to compare um, the, the monocular and the binocular visual field testing. So some patients will complain of a monocular hemianopia which doesn't make any anatomical sense in the first instance. And then they will make the, the next uh, judgment of having, when the, the visual field is tested binocularly, the hemianopia will persist. So that is to say one eye has a completely normal field, the other eye has a hemianopia, and then that hemianopia is replicated with both eyes open. And none of this has an anatomical basis. Um, so this is certainly a clue that there is a, a problem there. Now, the other point I would make about these visual field defects is any time you can document a visual field defect, you can often, in these functional visual loss patients, demonstrate that they make accurate saccades to a target within that blind visual field area. And that's the other test I find is really useful because it can be done quickly and at the bedside and you can be saying to the patient, this is a test of your eye movements, so they're often not aware that you're in fact testing their vision. But if the patient has a tubular field or a hemianopic field defect and can then at the same time accurately make a saccade to a target in that so-called blind area, you know that in fact they can see in that area. Yes, that's a, a really useful investigation as well. I guess the main thing to also consider is that um, we need to be very careful before to rule out organic disease. Would, is your approach to um, prove functional visual loss by as in a diagnosis of exclusion, or um, do you take more of an approach that there's are sort of you know um, um, it's more a combination of positive um, findings as well as some key negative findings? This is really such a complex area because we do need to ensure that there is no underlying organic disorder. Sometimes patients with organic visual loss present in unusual ways and there are some conditions that can certainly trip us up. Uh, I would think in particular conditions such as Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, um, uh, keratoconus, some macular dystrophies and some of the uh, occult outer retinopathies and um, also um, the uh, posterior cortical atrophy is another very common uh, condition that can, can confuse us. So these things need to be considered. And, and we have to remember that patients can have a combination of both organic disease and non-organic disease. And this is also very frequently uh, difficult to determine. So in order to make a, a diagnosis of functional visual loss, I think we need to have 
a demonstration that the vision is better than what the patient is claiming in the first instance. Um, and, um, and, and this sort of positive feature is required, not just the exclusion of organic disease, which is also important. Yes, it's interesting. I, I find that you generally get two, two groups of patients. Um, there's a group that will be resistant to any um, suggestion that this could be functional or emotional. And then there is a group that's almost relieved when you finally bring that up, that could stress be contributing. Um, and um, they generally will then tell you a lot of things that has actually been stressing them. Um, and they, they're quite relieved not to have an organic diagnosis. Um, so I guess if we move on just in the last few minutes, just to, um, to a brief approach to management um, of people with functional visual loss and how to um, broach the subject with these patients. And, you know, clearly this all takes a lot of time, but I think um, there might be some take-home points that could be useful um, to listeners. Thank you. Yes, well, I agree. It's a process. So once we have got to the point that we've, we feel we've concluded all the investigations, that we've demonstrated the vision is better than stated, and there are those positive features that go along, then it is incumbent, I think, on the neuro-ophthalmologist to, to clearly and sensitively explain to the patient what the diagnosis is. And that's really important because without that, the patient cannot move forwards. There is no chance. If we use euphemisms, if we um, duck and dodge this issue, the patient will continue on with their severe disability and with useless and expensive and unnecessary investigations. So it is important to call it. What I generally do is sit down, reserve time with the patient and explain to them that they have functional visual loss. I explain that we see this very frequently. I demonstrate and explain to them all the features that let me know why they don't have an organic disease and why this fits this particular pattern. I explain that we don't really understand what is the cause of this particular condition, but I do indicate that in some patients it can reflect this underlying psychiatric disturbances such as depression or anxiety, and I also mention conditions such as conversion disorder. I explain to them that it is uh, useless to consider further investigations and um, try to establish with them a management plan. I usually preempt during this discussion their own anger and resentment, and I explain to them that when we explain this to patients, that they often get angry and upset and feel dismissed and um, and not, not valued and that we're implying that it's making it up. And I very carefully go through all these things and explain that that is not the case. This is a real illness, a real problem, and it deserves real attention. If we can get to that point and the patient hasn't already stormed out of the room in indignation, then, as you say, we have a chance that we could do something. And then we can start talking about... Um, what we might be able to do in terms of perhaps a rehabilitation program that sometimes helps patients to make a recovery and specialised psychiatric services. And I do emphasise specialised psychiatric services because really what we need here is a psychologist or a psychiatrist who is experienced in the management of these conditions, um, who's able to, to take on face value what we've found in the ophthalmology department and to be able to work with the patient and look for those underlying causes because those underlying causes are really complex and they're not the sort of thing that we're going to be able to tease out in a 30-minute consultation. That's really great, Neil, and I, I think um, it's very important that these people 
patients have a relationship with a specific doctor um, and that care and empathy you show initially um, could very well make the patient come back to you and as much as much hard work as it is you probably you couldn't truly make a difference in these people's lives and and contain the anxiety and protect them from harm from more and more investigations um the one of the main things as well that from your talk is that um the prognosis of functional visual loss um and especially if it's not handled well um can be quite variable do you want to just make a comment about that that's right the prognosis is hard to determine because most studies are plagued by poor follow-up because of exactly the reasons we've we've spoken about but when it is handled properly um, over half can achieve a recovery and that is an important point to stress to the patients that if they can accept this diagnosis and not commence a merry-go-round of, of seeing lots of specialists um, then they they do have a chance of getting getting better i find personally on on my own observation that this depends a little bit on how much the patient has invested in the illness from a psychiatric point of view. Um, when you see, for example, uh, an, an adolescent girl who may have some school avoidance behaviour, um, who comes in with problems fairly early on, we may have a very good chance of getting a recovery. When you see someone who is 10 years down the track and um, their family has accepted that they are blind and made all sorts of adaptations around this, there is almost zero chance of recovery. Um, but that doesn't stop us from trying. And I think we have to try and uh, get the diagnosis correct. And then that leads to the best chance of a good treatment outcome. Last thing before we before we um, end this um, podcast, I forgot to ask you just to tell our readers about um, the mirror test um, and perhaps one other test that you find most useful. Thanks. Well, the, the mirror test is not one that I use a great deal, but um, when you uh, show the patient a visual target um, that is behind them in a mirror and then you you tilt the the mirror move the mirror then the um, the angle that the target has moved is doubled and so it's a way of of demonstrating um, that there's been a, a very large target that they um, that they were able to to see so it's just another way of demonstrating the vision is better uh, than what the patient states the other test I think is most useful is the um, the prism uh, the four base out test and that is using a small um, horizontal prism, so four prism diopters base out, placed in front of either eye. And really, if you if you put a prism like that in front of an eye that is claiming poor vision, and there is a refixation movement that they see, that tells you that they are using their fovea and that they have good visual acuity. So that's probably the best quick screening test that you can use. Great. Thank you, Neil. Um, so we might end it there, um, and we look forward to speaking to you all again soon.
um, um, suspect has functional visual loss.